When I was young and a children's pastor back in the 1990s, I attended a church conference in Saddleback, California, led by none other than Rick Warren. And if they'll put my picture up here, we'll get there eventually. There we go. So Mr. Rick Warren. And there were several thousand pastors there to sit at the feet of Rick Warren and learn about purpose. How could we be purpose-driven pastors? How could we pastor purpose-driven churches? And so at the first breakout session, they had us sit down in tables of 10. And so I sat at this table of 10. I was in my, what, late 20s, early 30s. I was young, and I was the children's pastor of a small church. And one by one, we went around the table and we introduced ourselves. And these were the questions that were posed. So what are you running these days? That's pastor speak for how many people come to hear you preach? Uh, what kind of budget do you guys have this year? Oh, 4.5 million. Yeah, we were that a few years ago, you know, and on and on it went. Uh, how many guys do you have on staff? And so the, the, the pastor at the, of the largest church at our table is a pastor of a church of 10,000, believe it or not. The, the, the pastor who pastored the smallest church at our table, other than me, was 1,500. So I was the children's pastor of a church of 250 at this table of... Nine other pastors. Guess which pastor led the discussion? Wasn't me. <laughs> it was the pastor, the capable pastor of a church of 10,000. And so it was hard not at that table to do the comparison game because there we, there we were right in front of each other. Now, when I started Generations Community Church along with 10 other families, I thought I need to get better at this leadership stuff. So I started going to conferences every year in Atlanta, Georgia, and I sat at the feet of Andy Stanley. And so I did the comparison game. And I compared myself to Andy Stanley. You know, North Point Community Church had 800 people its first Sunday. At the end of its first year, they were a church of 4,000. Generations had 35, 40 people on our first Sunday. <laughs> at the end of our first year, I think we were 70. Okay. Pastor Andy Stanley's sermons were being matriculated regularly into books. Pastor Max's sermons were regularly matriculating into a file folder into the file cabinet, <laughs> okay? And the comparison game went. Now, the thing about today that's different is that today you and I can compare ourselves to all kinds of people, people we know, people we used to know, people we don't even know, but we're friends on Facebook, we're friends on Instagram, and so... We have access to hundreds and thousands of people all over the world. And so social media for many people is actually social comparison. And that's what we do on social media. And the comparison game is infinite and never ending. You go to see your family in Alabama. You go to see your family in Alabama and that's your trip and you get a turkey dinner when it's all done and your Instagram friend, they went on a Disney cruise and they go snorkeling. They win, you lose, ah, their life is better. Or you finally break up a relationship with a boyfriend, girlfriend, because it's not healthy, because you know this shouldn't be the relationship that becomes the husband-wife relationship. And so you do that. And of course, your Instagram friend, they're engaged, and it's going to be a destination wedding. And so they win, you lose, their life is better. You finally move into that apartment or that house, and you think to yourself, this could work. 
this house could work. We could make this apartment work. And of course, your Instagram friend, they remodel the whole thing or they move into a 10,000 square. I mean, so they win, you lose, their life is better. And so on and on it goes. There are several problems with the social media comparison game that we play. First of all, we're only seeing people's highlights. So on Instagram and Facebook, what tends to get posted the most are anniversaries, celebrations, proposals, weddings, births, trips, remodeling projects, the kind of the highlights of people's lives. People don't tend to uh, post a lot about their health woes or the fact that they've had five bad days in a row. Uh, and then when they do, the rest of everyone else is on Facebook is like, you're just blah, 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 and it creates a little firestorm. It does, okay? And so the first thing about that is that we're seeing other people's highlights. We're not seeing their reality. And the second thing that goes wrong when we do the social comparison game on social media is that we tend to look up instead of looking down. So when we compare, we always compare to someone who's a little farther down the road than us, someone whose home is a little bit bigger than ours, someone who's maybe a decade down the road in their professional career, someone who's earning a little bit more money. And so when we do that comparison, we end up feeling somehow less, somehow inferior, somehow unworthy. And depressed. As Alfred Adler put it way back a long time ago, to be human is to have inferiority feelings. Can I get an amen? <laughs> to be human is to have inferiority feelings. Thanks, Alfred. In 2017, there was a study published in Clinical Psychological Science, and they found that between the year 2010 and 2015 among adolescents, in other words, among teenagers, that there was a 33% increase in depressive symptoms. There was a 31% increase in suicides. And they concluded that there was a strong correlation uh, between the widespread adaptation of smartphones by these same adolescents and these increases in depressive symptoms and wanting to take your life. These teens were comparing their lives to the highlight reels of their friends and they felt less. They felt inferior and it depressed them. Now, comparing ourselves to people isn't new. We humans have been doing that for a long time. In fact, in ancient Israel, King David was the gold standard that everybody got compared to. You were either like King David or not like King David. And David had his kind of claim to fame in that moment where he's got his little slingshot, he's a young buck, and he lets go, and the thing fells the giant from the opposing side, the Philistines, who were expected to win the battle, by the way. Only they lose because their giant is defeated and killed and they run off and the Israelites pursue them. So after that moment, King Saul and the Israelite army are coming back into Jerusalem and they're bringing young David with them. And this is what people are singing. When the victorious Israelite army was returning, after David had killed the Philistine, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. And they sang and danced for joy with their tambourines and cymbals, and this was their song. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. The text tells us this. This made Saul very angry. <laughs> What's this, he said. 
they credit David with tens of thousands and me with only thousands. Next, they'll be making him their king. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Saul's response is not, like, uh, not unlike ours when we hear or encounter somebody with more. And God rejects Saul, but accepts David. And let's be honest, it can go to our heads when we're comparing ourselves with people whose lives are a train wreck. We do that sometimes to feel better about ourselves. And in Luke chapter 18, that happens. Uh, two men went to the temple to pray, Jesus says. One was a Pharisee, the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. Oh, I thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner like everyone else. I don't cheat, I don't sin, I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like that guy over there. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and he didn't even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow and he said, God, be merciful to me because I'm a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, the sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. We do this when we do the whole, God, I, you know, I'm not like my sister-in-law. Woo-wee! You know, and so we have that little burst. Saul has the title and crown. He should be the better man. The Pharisee is doing everything right, so he thinks his life should impress God, but that's not how it works. You don't earn God's favor or love. And let me say that again for some of you that have come from Pentecostal backgrounds. You don't earn God's favor or love. I always find it interesting when people give me a formula how I can earn God's favor, because then it's not favor. It's just a just reward for what I've done. Favor is undeserved, okay? So we don't earn God's favor or God's love, okay? And my bottom line today is really simple. My things or other people's things do not define me. My things or other people's things do not define me. And so today I want to return to the story of the prodigal son. We just heard it. It's the most famous parable that Jesus told. And Jesus told this story to make a point a point to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who were unhappy with Jesus because Jesus was hanging out and sharing meals with notorious sinners, and they didn't care for it. And so Jesus rebukes their line of thinking. They're thinking that some people are valuable and some people are not. Some people are worthy of God's love and some people are not. And Jesus wanted to rebuke that line of thinking, and so he lays out three stories in a row, bam, bam, bam a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. So a man has two sons. The younger son demands his inheritance. The dad gives him his money. The son moves away to a distant land, blows it all on wild living and prostitutes. And then and only then when he's run through all the money and things are bad, there's a famine in the land, does he decide to come home? So how many sons does the man have? How many sons does the man have? Two. Two. Okay, you can be verbal and respond today. It's okay. Okay? The younger son had an attitude problem. He didn't want a relationship with his dad. He wanted his dad's money. The older son was obedient and faithful, but when his younger brother returns, he's angry. Okay? So Luke chapter 25 to 27, and this is the uh, big idea here, right? The older son was in the fields working. When he turned home, he heard the music and dancing. And they say, your brother is back. 
and your father's killed the fatted calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return, okay? Um, by the way, this line of thinking that Jesus, ha uh, that, that Jesus has that's rebuking the Pharisees, Luke constructs his gospel in such a way that it actually culminates in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, at the end of the conversion of Zacchaeus, the wee little man. And Jesus says, the son of man keep, came to seek and save those who are lost, okay? And so that's the key point. When a lost sinner repents, heaven rejoices, and you should too. But the older son is angry. All these years I've slaved for you. All these years I was obedient. I never disobeyed. Kind of like the Pharisees, right? The older, believer, the older brother believes he's done all the right things, which means he believes at some level he's better than his stupid little brother. What a, what a terrible little brother. Shame our family like that. Demand the money. I can't even believe dad gave into it. Like what father does that? Gave, it, gave him the money, and then he goes and blows it all, all of that hard work, all of those years to have that and to build that, gone in another land. And I've been working day in, day out, and I've been faithful. Hey, Dad, I'm not appreciated here. Don't you see what I've done? And you've killed the fat, catted, fatted calf for him, and there's nothing for me? What about my loyalty, my hard work? Where's my party, Dad, for doing everything right? I want to suggest to you that the older brother does not respect his father any more than the younger brother. I want to suggest that to you today. The older brother is refusing to go into the party and is lecturing his father in front of all the guests. This son of yours, right? It's a scene. You know, the kind that you kind of want to watch at a wedding or whatnot. You're like, you know, you peer away from the table because there's a scene over there in the corner. Whoa! That's what's going on. <laughs> That's what's going on. This son of yours. Now, remember, dad's generosity, dad's generosity toward the prodigal son, killing the fatted calf, doing all that stuff, that's coming out of the older brother's pocket. This is all the older brother's money now. The younger, the younger brother's share is gone, okay? And the, the older brother is upset. He's livid. And he's just as lost as his younger brother was. The older brother was on the inside, he's now out. The younger brother who was on the outside is now in. This is the great reversal that Jesus talks about all the time. But what I want you to see about both of these men, both of these brothers is that neither one valued a relationship with their father. The younger brother was brash. He took what he wanted and he left. The older brother was patient and he worked for it. But at the end of the day, what he wanted was to be rewarded. I've got nothing for this. Both sons used their father to get something that they valued more than the relationship with their father. And so I want to suggest to you today, again, that both sons were lost, okay? Verses 31 to 32, his father said to them, look, look, dear son, you've always stayed by me. The, the Greek word is with, you've been with me. And everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day. All along, the father simply wanted his sons to be with him, to be in relationship with him. The same father who was looking out every day for the younger son is wanting to have a robust relationship with the older son. And the older son should have known that his dad would welcome back his younger brother. If he had understood what made his dad tick, he would have expected a party on the heels of his younger brother's return and coming to his senses. 
And again, his, the older father says, you are always with me. That's what it says in the Greek. And your brother is now home with me too. Come on and celebrate. If you want to stay out here and pout, fine. But hey, I love you too, son. I kind of read that into the text. So what I want to say to you today is simply this. The younger son is not more valuable because he came to his senses and came home. The older son is not more valuable because he was faithful and obedient and did all the right things. These two sons are loved and valued simply because they're the man's sons. Now I think you're ready to hear Ephesians chapter 1. Today's sermon is really just an introduction to a passage of Scripture. Paul says this, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his family by bringing us to himself through Christ Jesus. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for his glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He's so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave us our sins. He showered us with kindness along with all wisdom and understanding. And God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is the plan. At the right time, he'll bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. And furthermore, because we're united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. For he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. And then he goes on to say, And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us an inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. And he did this so we would praise and glorify him. You're loved and valued because God loves and values you. Your value is not because you have more than someone else. Your value is not because you work hard. Your value is not because you were a sinner and now you're not so much a sinner. <laughs> Your value is because God made you and he loves you and he sent his one and only son to die for you and to open up the door for you, in a sense, to come home. Okay? So I want to ask a few questions in light of this passage. Okay? And the first question is, has comparing yourself to others made you feel better? Since this is church and we're supposed to be honest, I will give you my honest answer. No. <laughs> Comparing myself to other pastors and other people has not made me feel better. Okay? Question number two. Of the two sons in Luke 15, with whom do you identify most? Of the two sons in Luke 15, with whom do you identify most? What is it in them that you see in yourself? And then lastly, does your value tend to come from things or from God? And so I want to give you some practical ways to kind of take this home. First of all, I want you to recognize today that social media is not reality. Let me say that again. Social media is not reality. It's not. 
On Facebook, on Instagram, you're just seeing the highlights. People share good news and the best things. And I'm going to tell you right now, the Instagram followers and the YouTube influencers, they're Photoshopping. They have a makeup crew. Who has a makeup crew? They have a makeup crew. I don't have a makeup crew. Even the guys on YouTube have makeup crews, okay? It is not reality. It's one of the most ironic phrases in American language, reality TV. No, it's not reality, <laughs> okay? So recognize that social media is not reality. The second thing is curate your social media feed. Curate it. There, if there are some people that are constantly I'm unworthy, I'm a worm, I'm terrible, unfollow them. <laughs> unfollow them so that you don't see their glamorous posts that are causing you to stumble in this way and give away your value. Unfollow them. It may require you to take a five-day social media fa fast. Five days, no social media, to detox, to clear your heart and mind, to get some perspective. And then subscribe to people that do inspire you or make you laugh because they make funny videos. That's okay too, okay? And then lastly, observe the Sabbath. The earliest Greco-Roman Christians weren't good at this. The Jews were really good at it because they had been slaves in Egypt for a gazillion years. And they, you know, when they were freed from Egypt, they had to change their mindset. My worth and value is not based on what I do or produce, Okay. And the Sabbath does that for us. But the Greco-Roman Christians, you know what they did? They, they switched church from Saturday night to Sunday morning in places like Philippi and Corinth and, and all of these places in the Greco-Roman Empire. And when they switched from Saturday night to Sunday morning, somewhere around 200 AD, they, it was an hour. That was it. It was early in the morning before everyone went to work because the Roman world didn't stop kind of like the American world today. It doesn't stop. It keeps turning and churning. Okay? So observe the Sabbath. Now, I want to name some truths for you that, uh, that are associated with not allowing things or other people's things to define you. Okay? So I want to name these truths. One, I'm worthy of love. I'm worthy of love. If you've made mistakes in your life, I made a mistake. I lied. I did this. Don't be, don't be saying I'm an awful person. Like, don't in your speech, right? So I'm worthy of love. Yes, we are sinners, but the Bible tells me that God loves sinners. And that's good news. My things, the second truth, my things do not define me. Uh, by way of reminder, you are not the clothes you wear, the car you drive, the job you have, the relationships you have or don't have. And then lastly, I'm allowed to feel what I feel. Create space for your emotions. And when you do, you'll discover that, in fact, you are not happy all the time. No one is. <laughs> no one is. It's part of what it means to be human. Don't believe me? Read the Psalms. Read the Book of Lamentations. <laughs> There's space in there for all the emotions. Gang, here's why this is important. If money or smarts or looks or success is what makes people valuable, like the ancient Roman Empire thought and like America thinks today, then not having money, not having looks, not having smarts, not having success means you are unvaluable. 
And unvaluable people can sometimes become disposable people. Back in 1874, there was a guy named Friedrich von Boldelschwing. Friedrich von Boldelschwing. I love saying that name. I can't do German very well. He founded the Bethel community in Germany, 1874. And it was a place where you could take people who had epilepsy. So I don't know if you've ever encountered anyone with epilepsy. It's disconcerting. They do the whole, and then they fall to the floor, and you're like, whoa, this is scary. What's going on? Oh, you know, it's a freak out thing. And so uh, Friedrich von Bodelschwing created space for these people in this community that he renamed the Bethel community in Gotterbaum, Germany. Now, as things happened in Germany, we had World War I, and then after World War I, we hit a crazy, crazy time in, in, in uh, Europe and particularly in Germany. I don't know if you know this, but a group of people came to power in Germany in the 1930s, and they were definitely on the train of the Ubermensch, the, 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 the Aryan race is the best race, and all the other races, not so much. And if you had epilepsy, you were not as valuable as other people. And so when Friedrich von Bodelschwing passed off this community to his son, whom he named Friedrich von Bodelschwing Jr., yeah. I'm like, why couldn't you do like Heinrich or, you know, but no, Friedrich von Bodelschwing Jr., so his son takes this over, and so in the 1930s, people all over Germany start sending their, their people with chromosomal abnormalities, physical deformities, people who are blind, people that they were concerned would be taken uh, by the Nazis. And this is what Friedrich von Boldersheim's uh, son said. He said, you can put me into a concentration camp if you want. That's your affair. But as long as I'm free, you don't touch one of my patients. You don't touch one of my patients. I cannot change to fit the times or the wishes of the Fuhrer. I stand under orders from the Lord Jesus Christ. There's some, that's a guy right there, man. That's a stand-up guy. And you know what? Because his father was so good at fundraising and raised so much money for this thing over such a long period of time, they didn't. So if you managed to make your way to Bethel, you were safe. They weren't touched because they were scared of the guy, even in the worst days of the war. Now, uh, Tim Mackey points out that literally in 1946, the guy, right after the war's gone over, the guy dies. I mean, he was exhausted. <laughs> he was exhausted taking this kind of stand against the craziness that was going on. So I say all that to remind you that your value comes from God. Your value comes from God. Don't give it away because you're comparing yourself to other people. And I want to remind you that when God gives you this value, no one can take it away. You can give it away, but no one can take it away from you. Again, the man had how many sons? Two. Two. One of them did everything right. One of them did everything wrong. And the man loved both his sons.